The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. Jason has the night off. Uh, we have two guests scheduled for tonight's program, which is always exciting. It means we've got to do a lot of fast uh, questioning and talking and discussing because we only get an hour with each. And with breaks and stuff, it turns out to be a little less than an hour. Uh, but it's going to be a great conversation nonetheless. In our, in, and then our first hour, we've got a returning guest, uh, Ronnie, um, excuse me, Robbie Thomas, will be back with us. Uh, he's a criminal uh, psychic profiler. And he'll talk about his new book. It's called Psychic Profiler, The Real Deal, True Crime Cases, Volume 1. And then in the second hour of the show, we've got got, uh, um, Lee Roberts here. We've got Lee uh, Roberts here. He's a British ghost hunter, and he'll be talking about the um, famous haunts of... um, Famous haunts of uh, the UK. So we've got a really uh, excellent show lined up for you tonight with a lot of great things and uh, two guests, and we're excited about both of them. Um, I did see something here in the news that I just started reading this, so I've got to take a look at it a little more closely. But it looks like Blue Origin, now this is Jeff Bezos's uh, company, um, as opposed to Elon Musk's company, uh, SpaceX, Blue Origin has been kind of quiet in their efforts to uh, launch and be active in this quest uh, to privatize our space exploration. But they've announced that they are going to the moon. There was an uh, invite only event in Washington, D.C., and uh, they are talking about a 2024 deadline for putting humans back on the surface of the moon. That's according to Jeff Bezos. And, of course, you know Jeff Bezos is also the Amazon guy. Um, and he's got this company called Blue Origin, which is in competition with SpaceX to put some uh, more effort, I suppose, in a commercial sense in our space exploration and our ability to put satellites in orbit and all those things. So uh, that's pretty exciting. That is pretty exciting, and we are uh, going to watch this very closely because um, it, we, we've talked to a lot of folks about the moon landings. There are some who don't don't believe it even happened. Uh, but if we were to be able to re- recreate it and put someone in there now, well, we might have uh, some of the answers to the questions that we've been looking at for a very, very long time. And we're, we're going to take a break. We'll come back, and we'll get all of this started. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Once again, I'm your host, J.V. Johnson, and our phone number is 844-687-7669. We will be taking calls later in the program. We'll be right back with our guest, Robbie Thomas. Welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. I'm J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. couple of guests on our show tonight. Later in the program, Lee Roberts, who is a British ghost hunter, will join us to talk about famous U.K. hauntings that he's investigated. Plus, he has a couple of uh, web shows, uh, Facebook shows, I believe they are, uh, in, where he, in which he investigates haunted locations live on Facebook. So we'll talk to him in the second hour of the show. But the first hour of the show, we've got uh, a returning guest, actually, Robbie Thomas. He's a psychic criminal profiler. His website is RobbieThomas.net. He's got a new book out that's called Psychic Profiler, The Real Deal, True Crime Cases, Volume 1. Robbie, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here tonight. 
No, thank you, JV. It's been great, and um, I'm glad to be back with you. So, you know, we ha- we've had you on the show before. We've talked about this a little bit, but, uh, you know, our audience is ever-expanding. We get new affiliates all the time. So we kind of have to take a couple steps back. How long have you been doing this kind of work? Oh, 29 going on 30 years. My first case was 1990. Wow. And, um, you know, as I tell this story, I always tell people out there who think they can, you know, jump in the middle of things and, and what have you. you got to really pay attention to the story. Um, I was naive at the time, and when I did put myself in the circumstance of being close to the murderer himself, sitting two feet from him, getting his confession, I ended up in his apartment um, complex. Um, you know, it was, it was strange how I ended up in there. I was talking to a friend of mine who was the manager of this building, and I kept looking over his shoulder, and Greg noticed that my eyes weren't concentrating on Greg anymore. They were on Jesse, who was walking into the atrium, going into the uh, main entrance of the building. And he goes, that's Jesse. You want to go meet him? I said, sure. So we ended up into his apartment. And my line of questioning, because I went through to be a police officer twice, my line of questioning, and I could see a black shroud around this guy. And that's what sent me off, is when I see bad in people, it's, it's like a black shroud. That's how I ex- explain it to people. And I'm looking at him in his apartment, and I'm starting to say, you know, what do you do for a living? Um, you know, you've ever been in trouble with the law? And then he just spiked up and he said, stand up. Um, you know, are you effing hot? And I didn't quite clue in at the moment because I'm just still concentrating on this guy who looked like Eddie Van Halen, five foot nothing, just, you know, looking straight, straight at me. So he reaches up, pulls my shirt up, and then I knew he was looking for a wire. That's what he meant by, are you hot? Oh, oh yeah. You right. And so then um, he pushed me down in the chair. He said, you want to know how it happened? And he said, um, we were ripping off a car stereo across the way in the townhouses. And um, Thomas Cook, who murdered again, he's in jail now. Again, he saran wrapped his girlfriend. He watched her die. Uh, this is his second murder. Uh, thank God he's put away. But Jesse, um, he goes, we walked across, and he pulled the gun out. And he says, you should have seen him hopping like a rabbit. And if you could picture me right now with my hand sideways like a gangster, and he was pumping his hand like, a gun motion, and he had a smile on his face. He says, and he's hopping like a rabbit. Um, you know, that stays with me, and that was the very first time uh, I, I got myself involved that way. Then going back and talking to the detectives, and they said, you have to go back and wear a wire and befriend him. Uh-huh. We need that information. And I said, no, he made me. So that was my very first, if you want to call it, stint and um, stunt at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about this black shroud. Um, you say when you sense bad in people, uh, that you kind of see this black shroud around them. What defines bad? Does it have to be something as um, as uh, complete as murder or just somebody with some evil? Does it is it an evil presence that you you pick up on with this black shroud? Where do you think that comes from? Um, you know, I've been in paranormal movies like Dead Whisper and stuff and, and, you know, years and years ago. Um, you know, just from that and growing up as a child and, you know, learning to, to communicate with the other side, um, going through the process and those long steps of, you know, I'm human. There's, there's people reaching out and, and learning that way and then seeing bad people in life and knowing that, you know, this person isn't 
all that good and they have bad intentions, like you say. Um, you know, it could be anything from, um, well, we'll go right from murder right down to, you know, sexual abuse to some person. You, it just, you can see this in them. And, and when I get the opportunity with law enforcement to be on the front lines and question these guys, I've had the opportunity a few times, and you can see it in their eyes. They're like, they're soulless people. And you can, the way they have their mannerism, their demeanor, and that shroud that's around them. Yeah, I, you know, we, we've talked to other people who have these types of sensitivities, and they can see, some of them call, you know, we'll use the word shroud, some will say there's an aura, and it has a, you know, different color for different motions, whatever it happens to be. And I'm trying to determine, and we all have, I think, a little bit of bad in us. We've all done things we probably regret uh, that okay. might, you know, that may or may not fall on uh, the wrong side of the law. But I'm just trying to curious, you know, do you sense... You know, is, is it is it murder that you pick up on specifically, or is it just is it just an, an, an evil in itself um, that you can sense in people? Um, you know, it's that. But the other part as well is the the fact like people who have bad intentions. I mean, they're they're not right. Um, you know, they're your friend, but they're not your friend. We're having a little trouble here with the cell, cell yeah, phone connection. Are you, you there? I'm here. Yeah, we were having a little trouble with your cell phone connection, I think, Robbie. But you sound okay now. Okay, yeah, we have a storm overhead, too. So we got to, you know. Um, yeah, the bad intentions, as you say. Um, you know, sensing people who have that uh, persona about them. Mother's intuition, you know, um, they would say your, mom, your mother has great intuition or, or a police instinct policeman's intuition yeah it's that sense that people have so you know as a psychic medium uh, you've decided to use your sensitivities for the good of law enforcement and helping people in that way um, but you probably recognized you had these sensitivities before that what was your first inclination that you that this was something that you uh, you could pick on that pick up on that not everybody can um you know, go back when I was a child, age two and three. Um, back in the 60s, if your mother had a child out of wedlock, the Roman Catholic Church would take the child and put that child up for adoption. Right. My mother met a, a man who promised her the world and did not follow through with that, and she ended up getting pregnant and having a child. The, the church stepped in, gave that child up for adoption. So therefore, years later, my mother married my father and had me. So you have this young child running around age two and three saying, am I adopted? I know part of me out there begged her, bothered her for, well, in 1990, my mother passed. Her side of the family took me aside and said, yeah, she's been looking for you, and we have um, a surprise for you. Your mother left you a gift. So, you know, I'm trying to put one one together, and they said, her name's Mary. And you were right all those years. So then Fox did a special, and it was a, um, a commemorative uh, little special of Mary and me getting together and oh, wow. after all those years. And it, it was something else, you know. Yeah, I mean that's that's an amazing story. Um, you know, when you started to recognize you had these sensitivities and you were able to see these things, uh, did at any point did, did it did it scare you? Especially the mediumship 
part of that. Uh, you know, when, when you start seeing and hearing messages from the other side, especially as a child, that's got to be somewhat um, frightening at first. Yeah. My first book I wrote was in 2003, and I wrote about my peer section and how my peers, to me, I would feel crushed if they found out because the mockery and, and back in those days, it was frowned upon and what have you. Uh, growing up as a child in an adolescent, my father bought a house where I was going to a Catholic school, high school. And age 13, we remodeled the home during the summer. The man passed away in that home that my father bought the house after he passed. Um, there was a little bit of a fire, so we remodeled that summer. And as I got to the end around August, and the, the gentleman himself, showed up in my bedroom. I remember one night oh, wow. turning the lights off. It was a moonlit night, and we all hear about, you know, shadow people, full apparitions, and what have you. So the, the, the curtains were open, and it illuminated my bedroom, and as I climbed into bed and I turned over, there he was, and he made his way towards the bed. So I, I screamed. I was young. I screamed. And, of course, my mother come running in, flicked on the light, and he was gone. But over the course of the rest of the time in August into September, I got very acquainted with this gentleman. And what he explained to me was there was three gentlemen adjacent from where we lived across the street. There was Mr. Leach, Mr. Whiting, and um, Bill Harding. So all these three gentlemen were good friends of this man that lived in his home. And he explained that they were going to pass in very sudden. So I'm taking this in at a very young age learning to cope and understand the difference between communication, messages, and what have you. Mr. Leach come down with cancer. And I mean, he was a very stout man. And as I remember him coming across the street, holding his pants in his hands. And he'd sit on the front porch and talk to my father. And i just stare at him. And I just knew what was coming for this poor gentleman. Mm. Sure enough, Mr. Leach passed away. Mr. Harding died in a um, hunting accident, and um, Mr. Whiting, he passed away of a heart attack. They all died within very consecutive short months of each other, and um, that was what I was told. That story is um, something I wrote about, and it just showed that the fact that when you're that young, J.B., you don't need to turn around and tell your friends that you know, you're yeah. hearing this and you're seeing this, because they wouldn't understood back in the 80s, and, you know. Uh, Robbie, as you got into helping law enforcement, did they seek you out, or did you seek them out in the beginning? Oh, in the beginning, it was very difficult, um, you know, learning to cross that bridge and them to come, you know, meet me and what have you halfway. But it uh, in the beginning, JB, it was about, uh, I'd say, 25%. They would reach out, but it would be through family. And the family would say, can we utilize him in, in this fashion? And they would agree, and that's how it happened. Anymore now, they, they just call up and ask me, or, you know, they still get through the family, but they still ask them to get me. So um, it's like my social media is full of families who have loved ones who are missing or loved ones who are, have been murdered, and they're waiting in cases that I'm going to be helping shortly. When you take a case or decide to pursue a case, uh, how do you prepare for that? Uh, you mean mentally, physically, and all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. 
Um, I do a lot of praying, and um, Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. Um, and thank God for my wife. I mean, she's my pillar. I take her on death scenes when I go. Um, when we go to different places like Washington or Maryland or wherever, she's on the plane with me. We're down there. Um, I need that reinforcement. I need someone to, um, you know, collaborate with and vent to, if you will. And sure enough, um, my family. So I'm spiritually grounded. I have a good foundation. Um, I prepare with the family, with law enforcement. I tell law enforcement things I won't tell the family, of course, because, you know, I learned from a long time ago, J.B., if you tell certain aspects of a case to family members, they have family members who want to run out to get the guy. So, yeah, right. you know, we've learned, we've learned over the years to, uh, you know, ascertain certain information. You give it to law enforcement, and you you keep the family abreast to what's going on, and and you use them in a certain way that you keep them spiritually sound as well. So there's a lot to it. It's It's just not, you know, you jump in, you go, and you do this, you do that. There's a lot to it. Do you um, have a count of how many cases you've been involved with and how many of those resulted in being solved where they otherwise wouldn't have been? You know, that's a good question. I've been asked that over the many years, the decades. Um, you know, hundreds of cases, and it used to be, do you have a ratio of, you know, percentage or what have you? No, I've never looked at it that way. Um, I just know I go from one case and I take one at a time. And we get a little piece of information that helps out. That's great. If I solve it, that's even better. If I bring somebody home alive, that's even, you know, that's great. So um, that's how I look at it. I just don't look at it as a number anymore. I look at people and, you know, looking for their loved one or helping them out in any aspect I can. You know, I guess I guess that's a great point because a lot of people would automatically say, okay, so the psychic is involved. Did he solve the case? Well, you may not necessarily have solved it, but you may have pointed people in the right direction or you may have brought in one piece of evidence or an idea that wasn't looked at originally, which turned the case around ultimately to be solved, right? I mean, so it's, it could be pieces, too. Oh, yeah. There's the good, the bad, the ugly of everything, too. Um, you know, it's not all rosy and, you know, you're the glamorous medium out there doing this. No, um, like this month here is an anniversary of a young man, just a city not too far from me. I was asked to go down and take a look. So again, I take my wife with me and we're down there and I'm pointing in the water and around December time, I'm pointing in the water because he went missing just, uh, just before Christmas. And sure enough, the police did a drone test. They went over top of the water with a drone taking heat-seeking shots into the water. But when you die, you know, you don't pump, so you're not warm. So he's in the water, and it's a slow drift. Sure enough, the divers went in. They just missed him. Um, come spring, right around now, uh, go back. Oh, my gosh, this must have happened about 2012 or 13. He, um, he popped up because he bloomed up and the gases in his body and he was oh, just about a yeah. thousand feet from where we pointed in the water. So um, do I attribute that to a miss? You know, not really, not necessarily. Um, I feel bad for being the one to tell his mother because she wanted me to tell her straight out about her boy. Um, you know, those are the hard things to do. And so you look at stuff like that. Was I right? Was I wrong? Well, he was in the water. You know, I'm not looking for, you know, another notch in the belt or whatever you want to call it. But I'm just glad that, you know, we found the boy and that's where he was. 
When you uh, uh, get some a bit of evidence or something that comes to you through this particular method, is any of that at this point submissible in court or does it have to be followed up completely and substantiated with something that the law enforcement community, community itself does before it'll actually be introduced in a case? Yeah, law enforcement, I'm like a tool. So I'll be that tool or that guide for them. Um, give you an example. We were down in a case in Kentucky, and a gentleman and his son were murdered. Um, very brutal, disgusting, heinous crime. And there were three people involved. Now, this officer had a radio show. It was a car racing radio show. And he asked me on there, and, he, and just out of the blue, about circumstances about this case, and it just came to me. And I just started telling him there was three people involved. The family were listening. He had them listen in because he, he tied all this in to get me on his show. So, sure enough, they said, yeah, let's bring him down. He's right. There were three people involved. So we go down there, and, and um, acting officer Andy DeLay, and he's in Florida now, but he was in Kentucky. So we go and talk to the weakest link. He says, well, who do you want to speak with first? And I said, I feel the weakest link would be the third suspect. It would be Bobby. We need to address him because he will be the one to give us the most information and that way you can take it and go to the sheriff and we can utilize that. Sure enough, Bobby's there at the end of the driveway and we're playing good cop, bad cop. I got the recorder in my hand and he's firing questions at him. Out of the blue, I wasn't even supposed to speak. And Andy goes, do you have anything to say to this guy? And he put me on the spot. So I started to ask questions and I said, I know you're there. I know you were there. I know you didn't do the act, but you were there. You partake in what was going on. And he's shaking his head, yes. He read what made him shake his head. I'll back you up a bit. Is in the boardroom, I profiled this individual before the murders, during the murder, and after the murder. His characteristics, all about him. And he said, when he put all the, pulled it out of the SUV and he put it on the back, he goes, read that to the kid. The kid stood there, he turned white because he seen his life, what would happen during that time span, right before his eyes. And he's probably going through his mind going, how the hell did he know? And so now I'm asking the questions, and I got the recorder in my hand. And he's shaking his head yes, but I need him to verbalize, to speak and tell and say that yes, he was there. And sure enough, he did. So we got, we got, the, we got the evidence on, on tape and everything. So now Andy can take that and use that and take it to the sheriff. So that's the type of thing in that line of, um, I guess, being a tool in the toolbox that I can help them and render information. Is it your opinion that uh, law enforcement all across the country should be uh, more uh, open to using these particular methods? Anything to get the bad guy? I, I have a saying, families first and putting the murderers where they belong or the criminals where they belong. So in essence of that, I think that would be very viable and a very essential piece of equipment for law enforcement. Now, they have spoken up, a lot of them, and they openly endorse me, and they say that, that, you know, he's, he's what we use, he's what we call upon, he's the canine, he's this, you know, all these sayings they say. But, you know, I think that they can utilize people like this, and it would be a very appropriate way to get anything, like information. It's like you said in the beginning, that little piece of tangible evidence, that's all they need to turn that case around. And if they can't dig for it, why not use somebody like that? 
the book, uh, Psychic Profiler, The Real Deal, True Crime, I can't even say it, True Crime Cases, Volume 1. Um, you com- you completely go through uh, cases step by step um, as though the uh, people are right on the scene with you. Why did you decide to write this book and, and present it that way? I wanted families out there to know there's somebody who cares, who really is out there doing this. You know, if you go back five, ten years ago, and, you know, they said, do they really use psychics? Do they really use mediums? And they're getting a bad name. And, yeah, there's there's a handful that they do have. And I think you know, um, Sergeant Cliff Christ, he would say, it's the Rolodex. And they have that Rolodex of names. Um, you know, when you look at that and you say, why did I put it and perceive the book the way it is? Again, it's to show the families and the people out there that, it is being done, and it's being done properly to protocol because it's along the lines of almost like a police officer, but it's not. But I'm helping them in getting that footing so what they can do is take off and run with that case and get the, the bad guy. Um, it's labeled down in each sect, if you will, all through each case, and it, it, it's a derivative of how a psychic works, how, how we get the information. How, how we can say that, yeah, there was that knife, and then the family finds the knife, and they go on NBC and go, yeah, we got the knife, and it was right where he said it was. Um, you know, it, again, it's to, to say that, you know, it's being done, and I, I, know, I don't know how else to say it, and to give hope for families, because they can look back at this and say, look at all the cases in the book that he has solved and helped and brought people home alive and out of the sex slave trade and yada, yada, yada. It's all there. Robbie, do you wait for law enforcement to contact you regarding a case, or do you respond directly to family requests as well? Even if there's, let's say it's a cold case and law enforcement has is not even involved anymore, at least actively, do you get involved in those kind of cases? Yes, I, I do, but there there's a stipulation I always have because of legalities. Um, again, you know, being educated in this for almost 30 years, I just don't go in just to the family and say, okay, this is where we're going, you know, this is the information because we've seen Tom or Dick or Harry take off and go and try to chase down the suspect that they think it is. And, and then they're just causing more problems or they go tramping onto the, the uh, field of investigation. And then now evidence is tampered with or, you know, um, contaminated. So I always say, if you have a detective who is on that case or was on that case, contact them and I will work directly through them. How do you recommend a family uh, dealing with a loss, again, particularly with a cold case that has uh, that just is unsolved and just, I don't know how law enforcement handles cold cases. I know they're put in a file somewhere and sometimes they're revisited, but generally they're not active investigations. And families can be very, very frustrated by that. What do you say to a family that is experiencing that themselves right now? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of them I deal with and my email's full. I mean, weekly you know, 10 dozen, maybe sometimes two dozen letters come in. And they're, they're cases that are not just, you know, new and fresh. They're like you say, they're um, cold cases for like 10, 20 years. Um, I see their frustration. You know, the police aren't helping. They're not doing anything. They're not, but they are, and they've expend, expunged so much time on their cases, and they've got no leads. They're done, but they're still there. People say, oh, they just 
put it in a file. No, they don't. It, it's, it's still, the cases aren't really closed. They're active, but they're just, you know, they're there. They're waiting for something from somebody. Um, I give them hope, give them faith, and push forward. Tell them that, again, revisit this, and we can speak with the detective on hand, who's the active detective on the case, see if they will work into getting this case reopened, and if we can get some more evidence, and generally they do. So, um, you know, that's the only hope I can give them. Uh, you know, it, it's not closing the door, it's reopening it or opening another door for them. We have just a couple minutes left with you tonight, Robbie. Um, if there was something that you could have done differently in one of your investigations or one of the cases that you were involved with that could have changed the outcome or the direction, uh, a game changer, if you will, uh, is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Um, you know, right off the top of my head when you said that, there was a boat of sailors in the uh, Philippine Sea that was the boat was sunk intentionally, and the Indian government, uh, along with the sailors' families, they wanted me to go there, and I gave certain information because there's many islands where certain bodies were washing up, but I just don't travel like that, you know, and I wish, you know, the game changer, I wish I could have been there for them. Um, I, I keep thinking in the back of my mind, was I there enough? Um, and looking back at certain aspects of like little Victoria Stafford, um, I got the premonition of her going missing two days prior to her going missing. And I showed all the evidence that I have my drawings and everything to another program director on my hometown radio show. And he says, oh my gosh, you showed me this, everything before she went and it got investigated. I can't believe it that you've seen all this. I wish I could have been able to say, I can stop the inevitable. I can't. I, j- I can't because I'm showing something doesn't mean I can stop it, but I wish I could. I wish I could take that one more step and go, yeah, we can We can stop this. We can get them before it happens to that little girl, and, and she could be here with her mom and dad. Um, yeah, that bothers me. Quick answer to this one. Um, you, you work on cases. They're they're active in, in your sphere of influence, but do you, are you ever uh, – just kind of sitting there and information comes to you about a case that you're not even aware of at the time. Yeah. Victoria Stafford. That's that was the one. one case, the high, the high profile case. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I drew the body. I drew where the pile of rocks, the tree line, the wagon wheels, the uh, Mennonite people, the laneway that she drew and their body was found right there. Wow. Um, yeah. That, uh, that so so me, so this book is true crime, true crime cases volume one. Not sure why that's so hard for me to say. That implies <laughs> there's going to be a volume two, maybe a volume three. It sounds like you're going to have a bunch of these. Yeah, there is going to be something else coming too. I signed a deal for a television um, series. I can't let out anything more than that. Um, they're Emmy award winning directors and producers. Um, it just happened. And so it comes from this book and all my years of working. So you'll see, um, like the one director said, you know, you see medium on TV, but this is the real medium doing the real going with the police going out and all this stuff for real. Um, hopefully we can get some good closure for some people and bring some people home for people. Yeah, that would be, that's, that's really noble work and it would be very satisfying, of course. Robbie, where can people get the book? Um, Amazon in your bookstores. If they don't have it, you can order it in and uh, go to my site, RobbieThomas.net. All right. Thanks again for being here. Uh, we always have enjoy having you on the show. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. We've got a great show in the second half of the night for you here. We had a good first half, too. 
Uh, but in the second half of the show, we've got Lee Roberts joining us. He'll be with us in just a minute. He's a UK, a British ghost hunter. He does a Facebook Live ghost hunting show. He's also investigated some of the most notorious hauntings in the UK. And we're going to learn about that, about his work, his technique. He says it's a little different than the way we do it here in the United States. Uh, so I'm anxious to hear about that. Uh, we have uh, great stuff coming up for you as well. Tomorrow night will be a best of program. Monday, Cassandra Snow, who's a tarot card reader, a teacher, and a writer, will be here to discuss her new book called Queering the Tarot. And then uh, Tuesday, Dina Ray, an author and a conspiracy expert, will join us to talk about the New World Order. That's something that always gets people a little bit concerned and uh, emotional and angry at times. But that'll be Tuesday night's show. When you're uh, floating around Facebook or wherever it happens to be, make sure you check out Beyond Reality Radio and give it a like. Also, find the webpage, beyondrealityradio.com. Check out everything we have there, including a list of radio stations that carries the program. You may find one in your area. If there isn't one in your area, drop us a line. Let us know, and maybe we can reach out and get the program on uh, your local radio station as well. We're always looking to add affiliates. Uh, Lee, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us tonight. Good morning, JV. Thank you for having me. So you are in the UK, which what you got? You're six, five hours ahead of us. Five or yes, six, right? It's, it's quarter past six in the morning here. Yeah. I've got up <laughs> nice and early. <laughs> well, thank you for getting up and joining us. Um, that's yeah, above and beyond the pleasure. call, but we do appreciate it. How long <laughs> have you been interested in paranormal investigating? Uh, interested. I've been interested since I was six years old, believe it or not. Um, I, I first started when I went on a, a school trip to a, um, a really nice old abbey um, in Nottinghamshire here in the UK. Um, and as we was walking around, it was where the, the, the poet Lord Byron used to live. And that's the reason why we went there uh, to, to learn about the poetry and the history of the abbey. And as we were walking around, one of the guides happened to mention that there was a, a story of a, a white lady, a ghost that that roams around the halls of, of Newstead Abbey, and straight away, I was thinking, "Wow, that that is so that is so good, that's fascinating." And we actually went into the room where this girl, Sophie, um, who is who is known as the White Lady, used to live. And as we was in there, my best friend collapsed. Now you can imagine, a six year six years old. There's about. 20 of us in the room, all all screaming and shouting. My best friend's on the floor, collapsed. Um, they got him up, and he said that he felt a cloak going over his shoulders Ooh. and being dragged down into the floor. Now, I thought this was amazing. Now, you can imagine there was people crying and screaming, didn't know what to do. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is crazy. This is amazing. <laughs> and we got back to school, and the teacher said to us, right, we want you to now write up a, a short story and a few pictures about uh, Newstead Abbey and the history and the beautiful poems that you saw. Well, I I filled a whole book on ghost pictures and ghost stories, um, and it was around the same time as Ghostbusters being released as well. So it was that was that was it. I was hooked ever since. Um, and then and then when I was around eighteen, I decided that's it. I'm going to start investigating for real. I'm going to go out there see see what what is out there, what I can get into. Um, and that was around. 26 years ago when I started investigating, uh, so a long time ago. You, um, living in the UK, um, tell us a little bit about the attitude of Brits toward hauntings and ghosts. 
Um, from where I stand, where where I am, I, I believe that is very different to to in the US. Now, in the UK, we're very standoffish. Uh, where I don't think we have as many kind of believers in a way that than there is in in the US. I mean, I could be wrong. Um, where in the UK, what what we tend to do is. Um, We'll go out and investigate, but you get so many, so many naysayers that are going, you know, what a load of rubbish. But you, everybody's got a ghost story. Everybody's yeah, got you a know, ghost story, I, whether I, they believe it or not. That's it's a funny point you make there, and I'll let you get back to the, your answer in a second. But uh, one of the things that since I've been involved in paranormal investigating, I find very humorous is that people will often come up to me and say, I, you know, I don't believe in any of this garbage. But when I was 11 years old, this thing happened to me. And they have a ghost story, and it's the most yeah. peculiar thing because that, almost that everybody it. has one. Yeah, well, I, I used to play um, soccer quite a lot uh, in, in my younger years. And uh, when I used to go into the changing rooms before, and you can imagine this, these 13, 14 lads all taking the mickey out of me, all going, oh, you go into an old, uh, an old place and you sit there talking to thin air, and they're always taking the mickey. By the time we'd finished in that change rooms, I'd got everyone in the palm of my hand, sat down, all telling ghost stories, <laughs> all telling me their experiences. And I would say to them, remind them, remember 20 minutes ago when you all walked in here taking the mickey out of me? And, and now look at you. And, and that is exactly the same as, as culture here in the paranormal, it, exactly the same. So people will come on events, uh, people will go on ghost hunts, and sometimes they're being dragged along by their more enthusiastic partner or friend. And... By the end of the night, they go, wow, you know, we had really good fun, but we, we found it educational. So even if they're a skeptic, we, you can have, you can, they can still enjoy it by looking at the science behind the paranormal and what it could be. If it's not paranormal, what, what else could it be? Um, so I find there's something for everyone. And I think the UK are kind of very, very standoffish, but also very old school. I know you mentioned before when you were talking about how we do it slightly different here. I think the, the UK are, are very old school when it comes to paranormal investigating. I think the US are very more um, high tech, use a lot more gadgets, uh, look at it from more of a, a standoff point of view where the UK kind of go in and get hands on, which I'm not a massive fan of. You know, they use, they're still using like the Ouija boards, they're still using table tipping exercises, anything with hands on, which I'm not a massive fan of. Because I think anything where human contact is involved you can't you can't have that as as 100 percent proof that there's paranormal there because how do you know somebody's not moving it or subconsciously moving something right, right. um so so yeah, i i like the more gadgets the kind of watching waiting calling out things like that where in the uk a lot, and I mean a lot of people, even even the TV shows will, if you walk into a, a TV studio and we, we're discussing paranormal investigation straight away, they'll, well, who's your psychic medium? Where is the Ouija board? Where is, and it's, well, that's not how it's always done. <laughs> you know, that, and that's kind of the kind of the UK philosophy on it, really, that we, we really need to upgrade ourselves you know, you're getting a bit of a ribbing in our chat room here because you said soccer and not football. <laughs> but I thought I was trying to... Uh, <laughs> That's right. was trying, you're trying to help us know, out, right? <laughs> and, and, and embrace the, uh, <laughs> the 
culture. <laughs> uh, do, do you think um, because of the antiquity that you're dealing with? I mean, you know, you you go around England. There are sites that are thousands of years old. There are buildings that are a thousand plus years old. Yeah. Um, there are ruins that are equally old or more. Uh, does that antiquity add to the amount of paranormal activity that may or may not be happening there? I, th- I think so, uh, because you've got you've got layers and layers and layers of history there. Um, and so if, if there are energies there, if there are spirits and ghosts that are roaming around, not only have we got uh, things that are from the, the old building that stands there, but what about the, the land that was there before that? So, for instance, one of the, one of my favourite investigations that we do on a regular basis is Woolerton Hall in, uh, in Nottinghamshire, which was... Um, the home of, of Batman. It was Wayne Manor in the uh, the Dark Knight Rises. Oh wow, in well, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, and it, it's an absolute beautiful, beautiful building. But that was built in 1588, so you can imagine the history that we've got all the way back to 1588. But then before that, before that was built, that whole land was part of Sherwood Forest, and mm. lots of lots of little villages and 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 people that used to travel through there right next because it is probably about two miles from Nottingham Castle. So you've got that whole history going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the, to the old, you know, the old uh, Nottingham Castle that used to stand there. Um, so, so yes, you're right. I, th- I think that adds to the, the activity, to the paranormal activity, to the history of it. Um, and I do think we'll probably get that little bit more, um, but I always say everywhere, everywhere can be haunted, no matter. There's always been something stood there, whether it's something that's that we know today that's there. There's always something that would have been stood there, whether it's the land, people passing through. Uh, but also when you go on an investigation, you build your own energies. So if there are spirits and ghosts around, they'll, they'll, they'll come to you anyway, um, regardless of whether they know that, that land or that building. I, I believe you can go anywhere and do a paranormal investigation. So most of our listeners um, are probably not well-versed in UK geography. So when you talk about Nottinghamshire, which you've mentioned several yeah. times, we, most people will probably know where London is. Give us an idea where you're talking yes. about. So uh, London, um, Nottinghamshire is almost central England. So it's north of London, um, probably about 100 miles north of, of London. Um, which and it is very very central to England in England, so it's very accessible to to most people, and it is one of the most popular places because we have got uh, things like Woolerton Hall, Newstead Abbey, Sherwood Forest, Nottingham Castle, um, a, a place called the Galleries of Justice, which is one of the most haunted places um, in the UK. It's um, an old um, an old jail. Um, that used to stand in the middle of Nottingham. Um, so, and but it, but it, like you say, it is very, very central, and um, and it, it's also very, very much at the side of Derby, um, Derbyshire as well, which is reportedly the most haunted um, city in the UK. Um, and I think when we were talk, when you're talking about kind of the geography of it, with it being the centre centre of England, lots of people have passed through there, no matter where they're going, whether they're going west to east, north to south, people pass through the Midlands, as it's called, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire. And um, so you're going to get that that flow of energy, people coming through. Uh, and that's probably why it's a little bit more active. Where London, um, there isn't that many 
notorious haunted places down in London, believe it or not. There, there isn't that many to go and uh, that are quite famous or historic to go, well, let's go and investigate there. When we're doing ghost hunts, so you look at many, many event companies that do ghost hunts up and down uh, the UK over the weekends. There are not many in, in London at all. It's always around the Midlands um, and, and the middle of England. You mentioned, uh, I, I think it may have been one of your first experiences was in an abbey. Um, do the, does the presence of uh, the many religious and, in many cases, very old religious sites uh, add to some of this activity as well? Do, do you see any increase when you're at a, an abbey or an old cathedral or anything like that? Yeah, very much so. The the one that I've I kind of know the best is Newstead Abbey, which um, which I mentioned earlier. It's the one that that I had my first experience at, and I've I've been back many many times since to to conduct paranormal investigations. Um, and that was um, an abbey since the eleven hundreds. Um, so you've got monks that would that would roam through there right through to the the kind of the fifteen hundreds, and um, they, they, there is a certain room where the monks, when they're in their dying days, they would be taken up to this room to be laid to rest. And they would open the window so they could hear the, the services outside, so they could feel closer to the services um, and be closer to and, and be close to God because it's the highest room in the in the abbey. Um, and I always find when you go into those kind of places, and spe- specifically those kind of rooms, you do get a spike in activity. You know, the, the gadgets start going wild on right. you. Um, the experiments that we're doing are a lot more active. Um, whether that's a, a subconscious thing, when people walk in there and they get told these stories, um, they believe things are happening more. But you can't you can't argue with, with gadgets. As you're walking around the Abbey and nothing's happening, all of a sudden you walk in this room and everything starts kicking off. Um, so I believe there's, there's definitely something there that's, that is related to that that kind of scenario so that the, the monks walk around. And again, the religion, they would obviously, be, they believe there was going to an afterlife. That's yeah. the reason why it was taken up to these rooms. So they they've got that belief there. So surely, if there is something there, that's you know they they are going to come back and, and interact. All right, let's grab a, a listener call here before we have to go to break. This is Barry, a great friend of the program. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show. Hello, JV. A pleasure to talk to you once again, real quick. Love hearing from you, Barry. <laughs> um, Love it. Yeah, listen, uh, I'm just telling Orion, who I think is a real good screener. Uh, that's a good choice picking him out to do the job. Now he's going to ask for now he's going to ask for a raise, Barry. Yeah, it is the truth, JB. <laughs> but listen, I told Ryan, and I'll tell you, I think we ought to just run that Jason off, and you take over the show by yourself. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't want to do that right yet, but thanks. <laughs> okay, and Lee, Lee, this is for you. I've got a good question for me. But do you by any chance know my friend Lionel Fanport? From Great Britain. Uh, no, I can't say I've heard of him. No, no, I don't. It is a very small place, but no, I've not heard <laughs> not of him. Not that small. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, Lionel's on coast to coast quite a bit. But anyway, uh, Lee, uh, I want you to tell me and and the and the uh, Beyond Reality Coast, I mean Beyond Reality Radio uh, audience, what is your favorite and most haunting and scary ghost story from your past? 
Uh, yeah, great, great question, Barry. Thank you. Uh, so th th there's quite a few from over the years, but the, the, probably the one that I, I tell the most um, is the what I class as, as probably the best evidence that I've had personally. Um, and it was at a place called The Village in Mansfield here in the UK. And the the village was an old not uh, an old malt house so it was part of a, a brewery from the 1700s right up until um 1973 when it was turned into a nightclub now to give you the size of this building this nightclub used to hold three and a half thousand people per night um it's now turned into kind of a, a laser tag um laser quest type venue for the kids uh, but the place is huge and when you go underneath it it's still laid out like the old nightclub and we was doing um, an investigation there one night and i was hosting um, an investigate uh, an events team that had come along and hired the building and i was just giving them a tour of the building and telling them a few stories of, of what had happened um, and as we got into one area the group and there was around 30 of them all decided to stand in a big circle and start calling out, and they all went round one by one, going round clockwise around the circle, calling out, giving, shouting the name, um, asking for something to happen, seeing if they get, got anything at all. And straight away, I'm thinking, well, there's 30 people in this room, you're not going to get anything, because if you do, you've got that noise pollution of other people coughing and moving. Um, and I noticed from where I was stood in the doorway opposite me, um, on the other side of the circle, there was a somebody stood in the doorway out of the circle. So I let I let proceedings go. I let everybody go around the in the circle. And when we finished, I turned to the team leader that was there, gave him a bit of a nudge and said, is that that person with you? Are, are they not supposed to be within the circle? And I shouted over and said, oh, come on, mate, come on into the circle. You'll get loads more things happening if you get involved, get, get within the circle. And this person started moving back. Started, and it was quite dark. So you can only kind of see the silhouette of this person. And at that point, the team leader turned to me and said, no, all my guests are accounted for. They're all around. So then alarm bells started ringing. I'm thinking, right, the security of the building. I'm going to have to go and check out, see who this person is. And I walked around the circle, got to the doorway. And at that point, this person had moved about 20 yards away. But they'd moved underneath the light of the, uh, the fire exit. So then you could see this person. I could make out that it was a, a male figure. But it wasn't like modern day and, and, and guests from because this was only a couple of years ago and, and guests that was there that was all wrapped up nice and warm. This person was was about six foot tall, grey receding hair. He had um, a quite a high collar on, white shirt and high collar. Then he had a long leather apron on, like uh, down to his feet, uh, which I thought was like, oh, my God, look, what are we looking at here? This is kind of some kind of mass murderer. <laughs> and uh, as, as I looked at him, I turned to the to the team leader very quickly and said, um, is he not with you? Please just confirm, is he not with you? And this team leader said, no, no, no. But then as we looked at him, and it seems strange even saying it now, even when I, th I tell this story, I always question myself. There was, it was under a green glow of this fire exit. And this, this man just disappeared from the feet upwards, literally from his feet, disappeared into like, a miss just went up and, and went that was it and even now i question myself and think now did he move off to the left hand side to the doorway did it you know what what happened there what was it my brain playing tricks with me but what was good and very what was good for the verification of it is this team leader saw the same thing and as i turned to him 
he just started swearing at me. Yeah, <laughs> just, oh, well, just throwing yeah. all curses at me. And then you can imagine in this room behind me was 30 paying guests. Some of them had never experienced the paranormal before. Some of them was was quite scared. They was all huddled up, looking down this door, through this doorway, down this corridor, and all saw the same thing. You can imagine the carnage. It, everybody starburst. It, there was going everywhere. People was running into posts, into pillars. And in the end, I had to evacuate everybody from the other fire exit down further on down the building. And half of the guests left. They just said, we're not going oh, in wow. there. We, we're, no way we're not going in there. So we all went upstairs, had a bit of a break, and I was eager to get back down. Um, they, they all thought I was crazy because I wanted to go down there, and they, but I had to make sure the guest was okay. But eventually I got a handful of people brave enough, and we all went down and checked around. Um, and we checked the CCTV footage, and there was nobody there. It was as if we were looking in thin air. There was literally nobody there. We were looking at nobody. We were interacting with nobody. But we all, we all saw it, and there was at least, you know, there was 30 guests. There was myself. There was a couple of the team. So you're looking at around 35 people that all witnessed this same thing. Um, and for me, that is kind of the holy grail of ghost hunting. It's only happened to me that that once where you, you everybody knows it goes on a ghost hunt. If you get a, a, a tap, whistle, a spike on some equipment, you've had a fairly good night because you do get dead nights where there sure. is nothing. Yeah. So to get that full apparition of a full-bodied apparition is the holy grail. That's what you're looking for. So to get that to happen was like, wow. And to have that many people with me, I was so lucky to, for them to turn around and all have that experience because if it was just me on my own, people would just think I'm mad. You know, it di didn't happen. Right. It was a, a, a trick of the brain. Um, but you know, I, I had all them people as well. So that was, that was spooky, scary, but also, you know, really kind of rewarding for me as well after all these years of doing it to get something like that. Sure. But you say that you had, all these people witnessed it, but it didn't uh, show up in the video footage in the camera footage. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it didn't show up. It didn't show up, uh, and we've got three cameras pointed in that area. So we've got one camera facing the doorway from where the circle was stood, um, and there was nobody in the doorway. Nobody in the doorway wow. all the way through. Um, and then we've got another two cameras in where it would have backed up to the fire exit, um, and there isn't. There was nobody there. But then we've also got cameras around the building, so we knew. My theory was: was it kind of mass hysteria? We saw someone. I reacted to it. That it disappeared. And then everybody followed suit. Oh yeah, we did see that. We did see that. Well, they might not have done. But the, the different the problem is we we looked at the, the CCTV footage. There was nobody in that building. There was nobody that left or entered that building that shouldn't be there. So, what what was this thing that we were seeing, and where did it go? It, it couldn't have left by the normal route if it was a living person. It couldn't go through the fire exit. It couldn't have left through the other entrance because. We would have caught, captured it on CCTV. There was nothing, nothing, no, no figure at all. As far as CCTV is concerned, we was talking to thin air. There was nothing wow. there. Wow. Let's um, let's grab another listener phone call. This is D calling from Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, D, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, I was just wondering if your guests could share any stories about uh, paranormal activity concerning uh, royalty. Oh, that's a great question. Any experiences with uh, with any kind of royalty? Uh, there's, you know, plenty of places in England, obviously, that would be appropriate for that. Uh, yeah, good, good question, D. That's really good. Um, y yes, we we have. So 
I went to um, a place, it was quite a famous case at the time, back in 2007 and 2008, we went to a place called um, Clifton Hall in, in Nottingham. Um, and it finished up where the owners of this £3.5 million mansion um, eventually left the building and gave the keys straight back to the bank. And it, I think it's still the most expensive repossession in, in Europe. Um, and they just literally left because of the activity that was having there. But going going back to the question, when we was there doing the investigation, um, one of the things that kept coming through on our on our radio devices and the and the voices that was coming through was royalty, and um, it kept coming through with um, King Richard, all all the way through. It kept coming King Richard, King Richard, um, and. We we did a bit of history and we did find out that Richard III, um, who was actually found in in Leicestershire, uh, which is not too far away, actually, it's just south of, of Nottinghamshire. Um, he was found. He, his bones was recently found in Leicestershire. So we know he was he was local. He, he was around that area. But we found in the history books that he would have passed through Nottinghamshire and, and straight where Clifton Hall stands now. He would have stayed very, very close to there. Um, so to put all that together, we was like, well, you know, may, maybe it could have been. Um, but we didn't get really much more than that, other than uh, the, 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 the voices coming through saying royalty, Richard, King, um, and kind of putting that them all together. Um, and it, it, it could be coincidence, but, you know, putting all that together, it, it could have been that we was talking to royalty. Thanks for the call, Dee. We appreciate that great question. Um, one of the things that we find here in the States is that uh, many people begin their paranormal journey and their paranormal curiosities after a visit to a particularly uh, active spot. And one of those spots is Gettysburg, the battle, the site of the Battle of Gettysburg from mm-hmm. the American Civil War. Is there a spot like that in the U.K. where it's... It, it's very often and very common that people have their first experience at that particular site. And then a follow-up question to that is, given the amount of armed conflict that has um, uh, spread across uh, England over you know thousands of years, uh, does that in itself uh, add to the paranormal activity? Yeah, yes, I think it does. I mean, there, there is a site that we go to in Leicestershire, uh, which I've just mentioned on the, on the, for the previous caller, which is just south of Nottinghamshire. And it's um, it's a place called Bosworth, uh, with, the, with the Battle of Bosworth. So there is a Bosworth Hall there, and it is only yards away from this big field where there was the Battle of Bosworth. And people have walked through that field, you know, early morning, walking their dog, and have heard the noise of soldiers crying out, um, they have see, they've seen people um, kind of running towards them with old military style uniform on. Um, lots and lots of experiences from there from people that are non-believers. So, so like you say, it's their first experience, and that that kind of propels them into the paranormal of wanting to know more. Um, and the, so, the second half of the question, I, I think, with that much conflict. That much trauma, I think, is the, is the key thing. Um, that's going to leave a, a lasting energy wherever you go, wherever there is trauma. So not only is there gruesome, horrible deaths on a battlefield, but also the, the state of mind of these young soldiers that are waiting to go into battle, that trauma that they've got in themselves, that energy that they're going to leave, 
we come across that quite a lot because I think that that kind of stays with people, that that trauma, that conflict. And when they pass over that energy, because it's so strong, and you find it in prisons as well. When we go into prisons and, and do um, investigations, old prisons, you get that spike in activity. And I, I believe it is because of this trauma, the anguish, the mental state that these people are in. They're just at their lowest, lowest point. And that negative energy is just surrounding the building, whether it's a battlefield, uh, whether it's a, a place where soldiers was held or, or, or kept or or a, a, a prison or a cell. Um, I always find we get a real spike in activity in, in those kind of places. And that, like I said, I put it down to, to trauma. The, we're going to run out of time here pretty quickly. I want to hear more about your Facebook Facebook live broadcast. You do investigations yes. on Facebook, right? Yeah, so we, we I kind of stumbled over this in 2015. I was one of the first ones to get um, access to Facebook Live. So we kind of trialed it. And I, I was just setting up for an investigation and went live. Um, and um, it was so, so popular. You know, we got hundreds of people that was that, that was tuning in. Uh, and at one point, one Halloween, we got 2.5 million people watching us on Facebook Live. Um, and that was before Facebook changed all the algorithms and we you now have to pay for boosted and things. Um, but it, it was so popular. So we decided to do a regular show. So the show's called The Hauntings. Uh, there's myself, there's Ryan Griffiths and Pete Cox, who are part of the team. There's three of us. Um, we go out up and down the UK investigating the paranormal, usually on a, on a Sunday evening here in the UK. Uh, so it'll be around Sunday dinner time for you, to, you guys. And we uh, we just go we go to an investigation and we go live on Facebook for around two hours um, and just do our thing. We get the equipment out. We go out. We try and capture things. And we've also we've got a cameraman there with with the cameras that are following us. And people, what, what's good about it is people can interact with us live, like we're doing now on on YouTube. People can interact on on Facebook with right. us. They can comment. They can let us know what they're seeing. They can tell us where we where they want us to go. Uh, they can take screenshots of what they're what they're seeing as well and send it to us direct. So it's very much an interactive ghost hunt where people can really get involved with us and tell us where they want us to go and what they want us to do. And even if they want us to call out and, and go in a specific direction in uh, who we're looking for. Um, and I, I just think it's brilliant for, to kind of get to know other people and to interact with people rather than just going out there yourself. Is there a regular schedule for these broadcasts or do you uh, just wait for a notification to pop up? Uh, we normally go um, every other Sunday. So we'll be going uh, a week on Sunday, which is the 19th of May, uh, and it will be around 9 p.m. UK time. Uh, so the 19th of May, 9 o'clock UK time. Uh, we, and then it will be every other week, every two weeks uh, that we go we go live. Um, and we, we try and make it as regular as we can uh, to try and keep that continuity. But saying that, if we get a call out to somebody who want, really does want an investigation doing and they allow us to do Facebook Live, we will we will go spontaneous and do that. So the best thing I can advise is go to the hauntings on on Facebook to the page, like it, and subscribe to the to the notification. So when we do go live, you'll get that notification come up on your device. All right. Once again, because we're we're out of time here, Lee. On Facebook, it's what? It's the haunted. The hauntings. Hauntings. Uh, so okay. Just type, just type in the hauntings. You'll see you'll see a picture. There's myself. Uh, uh, front and center and then you've got pete and ryan either side on the on the cover photo so you'll know it's us uh, but if you go on the hauntings on facebook and uh, and like on there 
That's terrific. Uh, Lee, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Did you? Was there anything else you wanted to let folks know about before I let you go? Uh, just, just check out. Uh, I know there's an. The, I'm in a new show here in the UK at the minute. It's called Paranormal Captured. Uh, it's on at the minute here in the UK. It will be coming to the US later in the year. So check out that as well. It's, it's very much a caught on camera type show where, but we also go out and investigate these uh, these invest these captures to see if we can recreate it as well. So that should be coming to you guys soon. But other than that, give me a like on Facebook, official Lee Roberts, and on Twitter, Mister Lee Roberts. And uh, and and thanks for having me. Brilliant support. Brilliant right. show. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.